The Perpetual Virginity of Mary by Father Daniel Couture. Infallible Catholic doctrine teaches that Our Lady was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ, in which three prophecies and four figures of the Old Testament was this foretold? And how is this truth connected to the mystery of the Holy Eucharist? All this and more is addressed by Father in this 18th episode of the Fatima Center series, No Mary, No Jesus. Ave Maria Purissima. I'm Father Daniel Couture. Glad to have you back for this series of talks on Our Blessed Lady. We have seen many things in these uh, previous talks. Let us now study the great gem of our mother, that she is the Blessed Virgin Mary. It is important to talk about Our Lady's perpetual virginity, not just because it is one of her most beautiful crowns, beautiful glory to be a Virgin Mother, but in today's world, filthy with impurity, today's world which defiles souls, which in the last 50 years have emptied convents who were filled with young men for the men's convent, young women in the women's convent who consecrated their virginity, their chastity to the service of God. It is said in the Apocalypse that the dragon who fought the woman, we see this in chapter 12 in the Apocalypse, verse 15, the serpent cast out of his mouth after the woman water as it were a river, that he might cause her to be carried away by the river. So this filthy water, this torrent that the dragon or the serpent spit out in order to try to bring down the woman. But let us pay attention to the next verse, verse 16, and the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the river, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. The earth helped the woman. That is our role. So by studying that privilege of our Blessed Lady, we want to try to restore its dignity, its beauty in this world which is against virginity. I would like first to look briefly at what Father Garigou Lagrange says in his book on that topic, and then I would like to develop the various scriptural arguments for this truth of the perpetual virginity. And we will see another application of tradition, reading scripture. It's very important always to keep that in mind. In Father Garigou Lagrange's book, The Mother of the Savior and Our Interior Life, which we are following in the, the Great Lines, chapter 3, Article 4, it's Mary's perpetual virginity. Three truths concerning Mary's virginity. She was a virgin in conceiving, in the act of conceiving. She was a virgin in giving birth. And she remained a virgin all her life. In the act of conceiving, in the act of delivering her baby, and ever after. And we see that from the very early days of the church, there were 
people attacking this. The devil does not like that truth because at the very end of the first century, the first two truths, so virginity in conceiving and in giving birth, were attacked against the Serintians and the Ibionites. In the 16th century, of course, there were other, the Socinians, but also the Protestants, who say that Our Lady had other children. And this is where tradition is very important, we will see. And uh, regularly, this is something that comes up. So, why do we believe this truth? First of all, the virginal conception. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Behold, a woman who will be virgin in conceiving and bear a son. That is clearly the literal sense of this verse. Father Garrigou will quote a number of fathers of the church. St. Justin, for example, we have uh, others. We have St. Augustine, we have Tertullian, St. Irenaeus. All say that all the creeds that came up in the early centuries say that our Lord was conceived by the Holy Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost. So he was conceived by the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost, as we say in the Angelus. This was defined by the Lateran Council under Pope Martin I in 649, reaffirmed by Paul IV against the Socinian in the 16th century. So, virgin in conceiving. St. Thomas gives some reasons for this. He says, It was appropriate that he who is a natural son of God should have no father on earth, but only in heaven. Our Lord has only one father, God the Father. So there should not be another human father on earth. The word conceived eternally in the most complete purity should be conceived virginally when being made flesh. So the father begotting the son in a spiritual virginal way should be reflected in our Lord's uh, human conception. And that the human nature of the Savior be exempt from original sin, it was appropriate that it should not be formed by the ordinary process of human generation, but virginally. And St. Thomas gives a fourth reason, which is interesting for, for us. By being born of a virgin, Christ showed that his members should be born by the spirit of his virginal and spiritual spouse, the church. Born of the water and of the spirit. Jesus speaks these words to Nicodemus. So when we are, we become Christians through a virginal conception and birth on the, at the baptismal font. It's by the word of the priest and the water being poured at the same time on the head of the little child that grace comes in. It's something pure. It's chaste. It's virginal. So, that's the first part. Virginity in conceiving. Then, Our Lady remained virgin in giving birth. St. Ambrose, says Father Garrigou Lagrange, bears witness to the virginal birth when commenting on the text of Isaiah, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. She will be a virgin, he says, 
in giving birth as well as in conceiving. And then St. Ignatius the Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, and this was also defined by the Lateran Council. The arguments that St. Thomas gives are pretty close to the first part of the dogma. First of all, the word who is conceived and proceeds eternally from the Father without corruption of his substance should, if he becomes flesh, be born of a virgin mother without detriment to her virginity. Not only God the Father has conceived the Son virginally, but he engenders the Son in a virginal way. And so similarly for his mother, there's, there's no corruption in the father, there should be no corruption in the mother as well. Two, he who came to remove all corruption should not, by his birth, destroy the virginity of her who bore him. So the very purpose of the incarnation is to restore the purity of souls wounded by sin. So he did not want to destroy the virginity of his mother by coming into this world. And three, he who commands us to honor our parents should not himself diminish by his birth the glory of his holy mother. She alone is a virgin mother. And that's a, a title that no one else has. He keeps that for his mother. So virgin in conceiving, virgin in giving birth, and virgin ever after the Savior's birth. This was defined by the Lateran Council, again in 649, and Pope Paul IV later on reaffirmed it against the Socinians in the 16th century. And Father Garrigou Lagrange, quoting some fathers, say that the expression semper virgo, always a virgin, is common from the 4th century in the works of St. Athanasius, Dinimus the Blind, it was also used in, by the Second Council of Constantinople, the Latin fathers, St. Ambrose and Augustine, St. Jerome, St. Ephraim in the, the Greek uses that expression. So it is common teaching from the very first centuries of the church. Remember, a truth is Catholic when it is believed ubique semper et abomnibus. Everywhere, uh, semper at all times and by everyone. St. Thomas shows the appropriateness of the perpetual virginity thus. The error of Elvidius, who said that Our Lady had children afterward, which was fought by St. Jerome, is opposed to the dignity of Christ himself, for just as he is the only Son in eternity of the Father, so also he ought to be the only son in time of the Virgin. So it's opposed to the dignity of our Lord, opposed to the dignity of the Holy Ghost, who sanctified once and forever the virginal womb of Mary. It is opposed, thirdly, to the dignity and holiness of the Mother of God, as it would imply that she was dissatisfied with having born such a son. And finally, interesting, St. Joseph, fourthly, St. Joseph would have been guilty of the greatest presumption had he violated the virginity of her whom he knew by the angel to have conceived of the Holy Ghost. So our Blessed Lady is virgin in conceiving, in giving birth, and forever.
St. Augustine even says that Our Lady has made a, had made a vow of virginity. Virgo es, sancta es, votum vovisti. Thou art virgin, thou art holy, thou hast made a vow. St. Thomas will talk about this as well. So these are the arguments of authority, but I would like to develop that a little bit because it's very beautiful. It's very beautiful with the help of the liturgy, the Father's scripture. Let us see what, how this beautiful truth that the mother, we saw that when we spoke of the, the motherhood of Our Lady, the mother will have for that son the same love as the father has for him. They share the same son as Bossuet says. So, three prophecies, there are certainly more, but three major ones, and four figures. Three prophecies. The first one is the most famous, Isaiah 7:14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. The second one is less known. The second one is by David himself, Psalm 21. Psalm 21, verses 10 and 11 in the Vulgate. Thou art he that hast drawn me out of the womb, my hope from the breast of my mother. 11. I was cast upon thee from the womb, from my mother's womb, thou art my God. So how does that refer to virginity? Commentary. These verses make allusion to a very antique custom. You have to understand that the Hebrews were shepherds. They were moving around. They were nomads. And it could happen that the mother would deliver and there's nobody else around except the husband. That's one thing. But also, the husband being there delivering the baby, receiving the baby on his knees, was a manifestation, a testimony of his paternity of that child. He would recognize him as his child, committing himself to nourish him, to defend him. So we find this here. The prophet says, you are my hope. Thou hast drawn me out of the womb. So thou, his, the psalm speaks to God the Father. It's, it's our Lord speaking to his Father. You are my Father, he says. I was cast upon thee from the womb. We find this practice also when the old, um, old Joseph, dying in Egypt, he was able to receive on his knees the very end of Genesis, the last few verses of Genesis, chapter 50. It's Joseph telling his, Joseph, who's the, the vice pharaoh in Egypt. He's a powerful man, but he says, I don't want to be buried here in Egypt. You bring me back home after my death. And he says here, chapter 50, verse 22, he saw his children to the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. So the grandfather received his grandchildren. And there's also a reference in the book of Job of having been received by his father on his father's knees. 
So Psalm 21 is uh, a prophecy about the virginity concerning the fact that God the Father is his Father. And there's the prophet Jeremiah 31:22, The Lord hath created a new thing on earth. A woman will encompass a man. Nothing new, woman having children, but here that child that she will have in her, that she will compass, that child will be in wisdom, will be in grace, will, will already be a man. He's already, already has the, uh, the age of reason. He's, he's mature, although he's in the womb of his mother. So these are three prophecies, Isaiah, the Psalm, and Jeremiah's. Let's look at these figures, the figures of the perpetual virginity, figures which we will see in the liturgy, beautiful references to this in the liturgy, which shows how the liturgy is, as we say, a, a theological source, a theological place for our faith. The way we pray expresses what we believe. We find this on the, the office of the octave of Christmas, January 1st. First of all, in one of the antiphons, in the bush seen by Moses as burning yet unconsumed, we recognize the preservation of thy glorious virginity, O Mother of God, intercede for us. So the first figure is the burning bush. Moses climbed the mountain, he was seeing fire on the mountain, he climbs, passes a rock, and he sees this tree on bush, green and on fire. Green is the virginity, and the fire should normally kill the greenness of the tree, but there's fire and the tree, is, the tree leaves are still green. So the liturgy says, so in that bush, burning yet unconsumed, signs of the virginity of Our Lady. And there are some beautiful paintings of our, that passage of Scripture where Moses is kneeling in front of this bush, and in the bush, the artist put Our Lady with her child. It's a, it's a fairly common painting. So first figure is uh, Moses. The second figure, we're going to go chronologically. The second figure is going to be Gideon. Gideon, so remember, they crossed the Jordan. There was Joshua, and after Joshua, there is Gideon, one of the first judges. In the same office of January 1st, the second antiphon, when thou wast born ineffably of the virgin, the scriptures were fulfilled. As dew upon Gideon's fleece, thou camest down to save mankind. O Lord our God, we praise thee. As dew on Gideon's fleece. So we need to go back to the book of Judges. Chapter 6 is the story of Gideon. Gideon has just destroyed an altar to Baal. All of a sudden is sent by God to fight the enemies of the chosen people. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, verse 34. 
and urged him to lead an army. Verse 36, And Gideon said to God, If thou wilt save Israel by my hand, as thou hast said, I will put this fleece of wool on the floor. And if there be dew on the fleece only, tomorrow morning when I get up, if the fleece is soaked with dew, and if it be dry on all the ground beside, I shall know that by my hand, as thou hast said, thou wilt deliver Israel. So only the, the fleece of the, the lamb will be soaked with the dew. The grass around will be dry. And it was so. Uh, Gideon got up and he went to touch and rising before day, wringing the fleece, he filled the vessel with the dew. But he said maybe there was a, maybe, I don't know, if an accident, there was a tiny cloud that went by, stopped and continued. I don't know. So he said again to God, let not thy wrath be kindled against me. If I try thee once more, can, can I ask for a second sign? Seeking a sign in the fleece. So this time we do the opposite. I pray that the fleece only may be dry and all the ground wet with dew. And God did that night as he had requested. And it was dry on the fleece only and there was dew all over the ground. Interesting sign. Interesting sign. It, it reminds us of uh, St. Teresa of the child Jesus praying for snow when she received the veil and she managed to change the temperature. Then how much... The, the friends of God are pleasing to God and he will give in to their whims. So, how is that? Well, that was a sign for, for Gideon. Well, let's go further because the liturgy tells us that this miracle is a sign of the virginity. The scriptures were fulfilled when our Lord was born of the virgin. As dew upon Gideon's fleece, thou camest down to save mankind. So, Here's the commentary by St. Bonaventure. The Blessed Virgin, says St. Bonaventure, is comparable to a fleece because it is from her flesh that was woven the garment that Christ used to veil his divinity. Just like garments are taken from the wool of, of sheep. Now, the first night represents the night of the Annunciation when Christ came down in the womb of his mother, like the dew on the fleece, silently, mysteriously, chastely, without touching her virginity. He laid in her as in a soft fleece, warm, and he impregnated her superabundantly with his grace while the rest of the world around was still dry. So we spoke of the fullness of grace in Our Lady when, when Our Lord came in her, the fullness even increased, but it was all in Mary. The second night was the night of the Passion, whilst when grace was flooding the world until the end of time through that sacrifice of Christ, the Virgin remained alone at the foot of the cross in the abyss of her sorrow deprived of all consolations. She had no more tears. She had cried so much. So Our Lady is dry because it's the Passion, but the world is, is covered with the dew of grace. So the second figure, Gideon. The third is Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a famous one, the famous 
east gate. Chapter 44 of Ezekiel. He brought me back to the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary. So Ezekiel has a vision of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. This gate which looked towards the east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut, and it shall not be opened. And no man shall pass through it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it, and it shall be shut. Interesting. And this is the commentary of St. Augustine, of St. Thomas quoting St. Augustine. It's even stronger because St. Thomas approves and teaches according to the fathers of the church, a truth which was believed by all Catholics at all times. Here's a good example of this. So it is in the third part of St. Thomas, question 28, about the virginity of Our Lady. In the said contra, the argument to the contrary, he says, It is written, Ezekiel 44.2, This gate shall be shut, and it shall not be open, and no man shall pass through it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Expounding these words, Augustine says in a sermon, quote, What means this closed gate in the house of the Lord, except that Mary is to be ever inviolate. What does it mean that no man shall pass through it, save that Joseph shall not know her? And what is this? The Lord alone enters in and goes out by it, except that the Holy Ghost shall impregnate her and that the Lord of angels shall be born of her. And what this means, it shall be shut forevermore, but that Mary is a virgin before his birth, a virgin in his birth, and a virgin after his birth. It's a beautiful commentary of the saints, the fathers, on sacred scripture. So, first Moses, the burning bush, second Gideon, the fleece, third Ezekiel with the eastern gate, and by the way, a little detail, if ever you go to Jerusalem, it's the gate looking at Gethsemane. Just across the Sidron, there's Gethsemane. When you are in Gethsemane, you come out of the church, you look, you have the walls. Of course, they're not the original wall, but nevertheless, it's the way they rebuilt it, pretty close. You look, and the gate you see, which is closed, nobody goes through it, is that famous eastern gate. And the fourth sign, so we saw three prophecies and four signs. The fourth sign is that little pebble of Daniel. Daniel 2.34. Remember that statue, the king had a dream. This head was of gold, a huge statue. The head of the statue was of fine gold, the breast and the arms of silver, the belly and the thighs of brass, the legs of iron and the feet, part of iron and part of clay. Verse 34, thus thou sawest. So in a dream, the king saw this. Till a stone was cut out of a mountain without hands. And it struck the statue upon the feet thereof that were of iron and of clay and broke them in pieces. And at the end of verse 35, the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that little stone... An image of our Lord, the mountain is Our Lady, the stone coming out without hands. Saint Jerome and Saint Albert say it applies to the virginal birth of our Lord. Sine manibus abscissus, Saint Albert, 
absque opere viri generatus. So our Lord was born without the action of any man. So that's what we have as signs of the, the virginity of our Blessed Lady in the Old Testament. But these can only be understood with tradition. It's very important. It's very important. Let's finish with uh, a little word on Christmas. Because throughout the whole celebration of Christmas, in the liturgy, in the masses of Christmas time, Our Lady is put to light. Yes, the Savior is born, the Emmanuel is with us, but he's in the arms of his mother. That is the mystery that is the most expressed in Christian art, Our Lady holding her child. I'll just give you a few thoughts for your meditation. Why did God become man? Why did God become a baby? St. Thomas, when he studies the attributes of God and when he speaks of the, the goodness of God, first he, he asks the question, what is goodness? And then he will say, well, is God good? And he defines goodness as what all things desire, quod omnia appetunt. Everyone seeks goodness. And then he's going to apply this to God. Of course, I mean, God has put goodness in everything, so knowingly or unknowingly, when we seek goodness, we, we seek the effects of God's work. Now, we've all seen little babies, mothers coming from the hospital with a little newborn. When such a mother arrives in a church on a Sunday after having just delivered the baby, everyone, everyone is attracted, especially if the mother is, is well known in a chapel. Everyone comes. That baby attracts. Every baby attracts. Little children, other parents, old men, big businessmen, soldiers, whatever. Everyone is attracted by a baby. So goodness is what all things desire. God became a baby because he knew that by becoming a baby, he would attract. Nobody is afraid of a baby. A child attracts because his nature is ours. One day we were that. So by seeing a baby unconsciously, we, we see the, what we were when we were young. By the, the feebleness, a little baby can do nothing. He cannot even move his hand in the first days. He's learning. He's opening to life by his innocence. That little baby has done nothing wrong, innocent, and by the goodness. And some babies, you've all seen some, some babies are so good, you want to kiss them, but sometimes you want to bite them. They're, 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 you would like some of their goodness. It's so good, a baby, especially if it's your baby. Well, that's natural. Everywhere in the world is like this. And if it's natural, it's come from God. it comes from God. And so... God became a baby, and God went even further. He removed, so to speak, his humanity. He hid it in what we call the Holy Eucharist. Then he can say to us, come on, bite me, eat me. That's the, the mystery of the Holy Eucharist, is that it's just sheer goodness. There's no more the, the envelope of a humanity. You cannot bite a baby, but you can bite a host. You can receive communion. There's a famous writer 
Father Chardon. He wrote in the 17th century. He wrote a very thick book, famous book, but it can be hard to read because it's, it's a high spirituality, high-flown spirituality. The title of the book is The Cross of Jesus. And he has a beautiful commentary in this book on the Holy Eucharist. I'll just read you a passage and we'll end with this. He says, in the Holy Eucharist, our Lord is in the state of ecstasy. If you remember the story of uh, Saint Bernadette at Lourdes, there was a one moment when she saw Our Lady and she had had a candle in her hand and there was a doctor just next to her, her doctor. Bernadette was holding the candle and she was looking at Our Lady and the candle went, came down and was burning her hand and she was not moving. And the doctor went and looked at it. And when she woke up from her ecstasy, the doctor says, can I, can we, give me your hand for a second. And he took the candle and put it under, oh, that hurts. But when she was in ecstasy, she could not feel anything. So when someone, when these saints are in ecstasy, they, they see God and it's like, if they're, it's like if they're out of their body. That's an ecstasy. The ears don't hear, the eyes don't see, the, all the organs of the body are deprived of their feelings, of their vital functions. And so Father Chardon says, that's how Jesus is in the Holy Eucharist. On the cross, when he was on earth, he was hiding his divinity. But here in the Holy Eucharist, as St. Thomas says, he's even hiding his humanity. He leaves only pure love, the essence of love in a sacrament. And so, as Father Chardon says, uh, this, this ecstasy in the Holy Eucharist makes him even more lovable and more admirable. That's why as the, uh, we say in the Psalms, he made a summary, a synthesis of all his marvels. He gave food to them that love him. So he gave like pure love. When we receive communion, we're, we're communicating to pure love. That's why communion is so important. So there you are, that truth of the perpetual virginity. I would like to say more about this, but that will be for another talk. Let me finish by this beautiful poem, which uh, Bishop Fulton Sheen would repeat often, especially when he gave a talk on Our Lady, and see Our Lady holding her little newborn babe, who is her God. Lovely lady dressed in blue, teach me how to pray. God was just your little boy, tell me what to say. Did you lift him up sometimes, gently on your knees? Did you sing to him, the way mother does to me? Did you hold his hand at night? Did you ever try telling stories of the world? Oh, and did he cry? Do you really think he cares if I tell him things? Little things that happen and do angels have wings? Do angels' wings make a noise? Can he hear me if I speak low? Does he understand me now? Tell me, for you know. Lovely lady dressed in blue, teach me how to pray. God was just your little boy, and you know the way. Ave Maria Purissima. God bless. Thank you very much.
This presentation has been brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. For more resources regarding the Catholic faith and the message of Fatima, and to support this vital apostolate with a much-needed donation, please visit our website, Fatima.org, or call us at 1-800-263-8160. So many souls need to know and love Mary, so as to truly know and love Jesus. For the glory of God and the salvation of souls, please share this talk with others. And may God reward you. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us.